I will say that I think, you know, I think our hand is kind of being forced now, given the rate of climate change. I don't think it's possible, but nor would it be be advisable for us to try to resist all change. Like that'll be a losing battle and we simply don't have enough resources to even attempt that. Um, I think what climate change is, is forcing us to, to wrestle with is to answer the questions more explicitly of what do we value from these systems all that's important when you enter into this conversation of, well, what can we do to prepare for what we know is gonna be, are, are gonna be more fire prone climate conditions in the future. Um, and I think this is where, similar to our earlier part of our conversation, I think this is where we as humans and as residents and stewards of the land that we live in, like we are really being confronted with some really hard questions because of climate change. And some of the answers that we used to be able to more comfortably lean on are no longer available to us. Hello, and welcome to Life With Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and this is the first episode of 2022 for us. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Phil Hagera. We'll get into that in just a second here. But before we do, I just wanted to thank everybody for the immense support we've gotten lately. We put out a 2022 Good Fire calendar, and the response has been amazing. I've been really excited to see everybody wanting to contribute however they can, whether that's uh, giving us photos to put in the calendar or donating in order to get their own calendar but either way it's been great to see the support and we really appreciate it um, a big shout out specifically to Joaquin Ramirez Annie Madden and Cooper Rombold who were all the most recent contributors to our $20 tier on Patreon um, that was our highest tier for a while until Zach Levitt uh, contributed to a $30 tier that I didn't actually know that I had and I didn't have it, and so I ended up making one. So now we have a $30 tier. So I, of course, want to give a big thank you to Zach as well for donating at that level. That immense support is super appreciated, and we want to thank you. As of this recording on Thursday morning, we still have seven calendars left. By the time this goes live, I'm not really sure if we'll have all those left, but I guess if we have enough interest, there might be a possibility of doing another run. Uh, so just let me know if you end up interested in one after you listen to this episode, and I will see what I can do. All right, and now for the reason that we are all here, we have guest Phil Hagera with us today. Uh, Phil is a professor of fire ecology at the University of Montana. Uh, there he directs the paleoecology lab as well as the fire ecology lab and has done extensive work and research all over North America his work sort of broadly centers on how fire activity is impacted by climate change. And his research is pretty expansive from there. And in fact, I've talked to Phil in the past for a story I did about Montana and how climate change was impacting ecosystems and fire severity and fire impacts there. And recently, I've become particularly infatuated with the history of fire on the west side of the Cascades. And in my research for that topic, I'm going to write a story or two about this, but in my research for that topic, I came up with some research from Phil, who actually did his master's at the University of Washington in Seattle, 
Um, so he did some research up in the San Juan Islands, which is a you know quick ferry ride from where I live in Bellingham, Washington. And a lot of his work uh, is very indicative of kind of what's happening across the west zone of the Cascades. So I wanted to bring him on the show to talk a little bit about that research as well as kind of what he's looking at in terms of maybe predictions about what West Zone fires, West Side of the Cascade fires might look like, um, especially with the 2020 Labor Day fires as sort of precedent for these fires that are burning in high severity and low frequency ecosystems. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into it. And I appreciate you listening, following, sharing, and I really can't thank you guys enough for the support. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Phil Higuera. Yeah, so my name is Phil Higuera, and I'm a professor of fire ecology at the University of Montana. And going on, you know, just over 20 years now, I've been studying different aspects of, of fire history and broadly the causes and impacts of wildfires in in the past and increasingly in contemporary times and thinking about the future so that's that's the fifty thousand foot view yeah um so do you i know you have an extensive background working in a variety of areas um but i'm really curious about your work in coastal washington in the san juan islands and elsewhere i believe um, can you tell me a little bit about that research and kind of that point in your life? I know it was your graduate research, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what what got me into what got me into studying wildfires was starting my master's program at the University of Washington in 1999. And for my master's research, I studied fire history on Orcas Island in the San Juans in Moran State Park and spent a wonderful summer there um, collecting tree core and fire scar records from a number of sites across Moran State Park. And then the other goal of that, which is kind of what launched me on the second part of my, of my career, um, was figuring out how we can use sediment records. So in that case, these cores that came from these small wet depressions that that abound up there in Moran State Park um, to be able to reconstruct and understand fire history further back in time before, uh, you know, older than what we can do with tree ring records. And so a lot of my career has been, a lot of my career and a lot of my work focusing on fire history has been based on using sediment records, largely from lakes, but to reconstruct and understand the, the causes and then impacts of, of changing fire activity in a variety of ecosystems. So yeah, I started out in Western Washington. Um, we, we studied fire history and vegetation change in the San Juans. And then as part of that project, we also had another study area near Carnation, Washington. So more kind of classic West Side Puget Sound lowland forests. Um, and I stayed at the University of Washington for my PhD. And, and for that, I studied fire history over the last 13,000 years up in boreal forest in Alaska in the Brooks Range. And after that, I've continued to work in Alaska. I've worked in tundra ecosystems up there, um, boreal forest ecosystems, and then I've worked in across the Rocky Mountains from Colorado up, in, up into Montana in subalpine forests and 
increasingly through more contemporary work in in lower elevation forests. This is so fascinating. I have so many questions for you. But the first question that just popped in my mind is that I've never heard of the sedimentation aspect of getting paleo records. Is that what you would call that? Would that yep. fall into a paleo record? So yeah, yeah, I've always heard of tree ringing and I know that's that's like fascinating to me, but I've always wondered like, how do you get tree ring samples for, like obviously you have dead and down trees, you have stumps, um, but for things that are, you know, like in the, in the one uh, paper that you published, you were talking about that 13,000 year, Time frame, and I was like, "How does this work?" So, can you tell me a little bit about the sedimentation aspect of that? Like, what does that end up looking like? Like, how can you tell that? How can you get that much of a time stamp from sediment? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, happy to describe that. Um, <clears throat> so, paleoecologists in general, we like we use lake sediment records uh, as these because they're these great archives of past environmental change. And in essence, the way that a lake records past environmental change is by preserving stuff, all sorts of stuff um, in the mud that accumulates at the bottom of the lake. So from the perspective of kind of forest ecology and fire history, some of that stuff includes things like needles from trees. It includes the pollen that's produced every year uh, that gets integrated into the, into the mud. And then when fires burn around a lake or a basin, some of that charcoal that is produced and that's injected into the air, some of that's deposited on the lake surface. And that too gets integrated into the mud at the bottom of the lake. And the main reason why lakes are so useful for like reconstructing what happened in the past is because there's little or no oxygen at the bottom of the lake, all that material is preserved more or less perfectly. So it's it's pretty amazing with lake sediment records, you can go and you can go to a slice of sediment that's 8,000 years old and pull out a needle. And that needle looks pretty darn similar to the needle that you'd pick up on the forest floor, you know, that that's only a couple years old. Um, and then just like you can identify species from needles, you can identify the species of tree from the needle. Um, with pollen, you can identify the, the taxonomic resolution is a little bit coarser, but you can identify um, sometimes down to species, sometimes you just know the genus. But that's a way that we know how forest vegetation has changed in the past. Um, a lot of our work puts that then in the context of past known climate changes. And then fire comes is added on top of that, both understanding fire both as a driver of vegetation change and in a lot of cases, something that responds to vegetation change over long time scales, you know, so over centuries to thousands of years. This is so cool. Oh my gosh. This reminds me, one of my biggest things that I like to nerd out about are bogs because they also mm -hmm. lack so much oxygen. And so all these bogs that get, get excavated in like Europe keep, you know, they're finding all these artifacts that are like perfectly preserved, human bodies that are perfectly preserved. That's fascinating. And I guess I didn't think that the same thing was possible with lakes. I thought there was maybe more of an oxygen flow. I guess I kind of grew up in like really spring fed areas. So maybe like that contributed to that thought, but um, that's awesome. That's super fascinating. And I'd love to talk about like the vegetation shifts. I actually reached out to you a couple of weeks ago about the vegetation shifts in high Alpine forests in the Rockies. And I know yeah. there's not a ton of, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of like 
I guess there's probably research, but it's, it seems like they don't know exactly how those veg vegetation changes are going to happen or like what's going to happen. But I'm curious if you might know how vegetation shifts might occur in the, in the Cascade range and the, especially the west side. Um, are we going to start seeing with more high intensity fire? Or will we start seeing more like shrubland? Like how is that shift going to occur? Yeah, I mean, and I should say, I mean, I, I interpreted your question as do we know what's going to happen after the 2020 fires in some of these regions? And, you know, at this point, we we have a lot of ideas and expectations, and those expectations are based in part on the study of how vegetation has changed in the past um, over hundreds to thousands of years. So, you know, broadly, we, the scientific community, has has a very good understanding of how vegetation assemblages, individual species, and how communities, you know, do or do not stay intact and respond to large-scale climate change. And that's, you know, that's a major contribution of paleoecology to our understanding of global change. And that's one thing that really informs how we anticipate ecosystems will respond to the changes that we're living through right now. Um, the really, like, one of the, I don't know, it's, it's shocking, it's kind of intellectually intriguing, it's challenging. One of, one of the interesting things when you move from paleoecology to the present is in, in general, and for a long time, you know, prior to the last 20 years, the changes that we would see in the paleo record were changes that would unfold generally over centuries or longer. And Typically, they, they would unfold over timescales that we wouldn't be able to observe in a single human lifetime. What's interesting and kind of scary at the same time is that we're increasingly seeing these changes that typically unfolded over longer timescales start to unfold over our human timescales and over, over our timescales of an individual career, you know, um, 10 to 20 years. So we do have expectations of how broadly, how vegetation is gonna to respond to a warming world. Uh, what the other thing that's revealed the challenge of like how, like when the rubber hits the road and we have a, an extensive fire season like 2020, say in Colorado, in the Western Cascades, um, one of the things that's challenging is when you zoom into the specific point in time into a specific location, there's a lot of variability in what can happen after a fire. And there's a lot of variability in you know, what year that fire will occur. You know? So for example, in, in Colorado, the fires that occurred in 2020, they were both like surprising and not surprising at the same time. They weren't surprising in that we knew that subalpine forests were sensitive to climate warming. We knew that climate has been warming for the last several decades. So we expected this to occur. Um, at the same time, it was really surprising to see exactly how that play out and kind of legitimately how dramatically that would play out, you know, with fires jumping over the continental divide, fires burning entirely in, in October, um, you know, smashing previous fire size records three times in a year, so on and so forth. Similarly, up in, in, in the Northwest, you know, the firestorm, the Labor Day firestorm in of 2020, that had a lot of really striking, strikingly rapid fire growth. Um, 
and there's been there been there been some good things written on this after that. Um, one of the challenges in the Western Cascades, in terms of contextualizing what was what what went down in 2020, one of the challenges there is that because fire is so infrequent in the Western Cascades, like it is a consistent part of those ecosystems, um, but it happens infrequently on a human time scale. So the more infrequent fire is, the harder it is to assess any individual fire event or fire year without having um, basically, essentially a larger population of fires to study. So there were many ways in which the 2020 fires in the Western Cascades were similar to what we know about fire in the past, um, but in other ways, it, it, probably the most striking one is just the human footprint that the fires were burning around. Like we know that that was, that is unprecedented and that is very different than the way fires burned in the past. And then broadly, we also know that human caused climate change is one of the major drivers of increased, uh, of setting up these weather and climate conditions that make fires more likely. So kind of on top of all the fires that are happening in the Western US, there's this element of human caused climate change that is basically warming and drying out our ecosystems um, more so than they have been certainly in recent decades and probably longer over many centuries to millennia in, in um, many regions. So that kind of overarching influence just, it's, we use the word enables like, this enables fire activity to occur more often. So any ignition is more likely to become a fire. And then once fire starts, um, it's more likely to spread rapidly. And then that's how we end up with, with more area burned. And so we, go ahead. I was gonna say, I know we strayed there, we strayed there from, uh, from vegetation changes. So we, we, can, we can pull back to that if you want. You answered like four of my next questions in that one thing, which was awesome. Okay. But I do wanted, I wanted to sort of like make a note that in some of your paper, in your papers, you suggest that there were these rapid climate change events occurring in the past. And that I, I you mentioned obviously that there, these are unprecedented or this is this, our current era of climate change is more intense than those eras, but I'm curious you, you, again, you spoke about this a little bit, but I would love to hear more about how it's differing and also like, I don't know, like what that precedence means for the current era of climate change. So first, how it's different. I mean, the, there's at least two ways in which the climate change that we're experiencing right now is, is different. And here I'm, I'm speaking specifically different from, so as a, the type of paleoecologist that I am, I, I study whole, the Holocene, which is the last 11,000 years, right? Which is a really long time to most ecologists, but it's actually pretty short to like, if you talk to a geologist. Um, so the Holocene and maybe a little bit further back to 13,000 years, that represents part of Earth's history where we were coming out of the last full glacial when, you know, there were ice sheets over North America and our landscapes were very different. Um, and so there were a series of, of gradual and some abrupt climate changes that have occurred over the last 
10 to 12,000 years that we, um, we understand the mechanisms that cause those climate changes. And, and largely it's the combination of the change, relatively subtle changes in Earth's orbit around the sun and the distribution of how much sunlight energy we'd get in the summer versus the winter. And then kind of internal feedbacks that occurred as you met as this giant block of ice on the northern uh, North America melted. Um, <clears throat> so we understand the mechanisms of past climate change. And in general, with some exceptions, the rate of change is slower than what we're experiencing now. So what we're experiencing now is both uh, it's driven by anthropogenic greenhouse gases. So the cause is different. And then importantly, from the, from the ecosystem perspective, just the rate of change is more rapid than what, we're, what we've seen in the past. And that just continues year after year. You know? So when I was in graduate school 20 years ago, it was harder to make the statement that we you know, are now experiencing climate change that differs from say even 1200 years ago during the medieval climate anomaly or another period uh, in the early Holocene when Northern hemisphere summers were warmer across much areas. But even in the last 20 years, we've just continued to creep outside and outside of the range of that historical range of variability, even defined over the scale of the Holocene. So what that means in part, um, I mean, one thing it means is that it's harder and harder for us to go to the past and look for perfect analogs for what we're experiencing. So. Um, in some of the papers that I've worked on, we've focused on this period, the medieval climate anomaly, which, you know, prior to the 20th century was the period when northern hemisphere temperatures were the warmest that they have been in the last, say, 2000 years. Um, and it was a, it's a really useful period to study because if you want to understand how ecosystems respond to, to climate warming, then you can just go back and reconstruct what happened then. And they're really you know, we can talk about this. They're really fascinating things that we've learned from that. Um, increasingly, you know, we're exceeding the bounds of the medieval climate anomaly. And what that means is that some of the stuff that we've learned might not transfer. You know, we, there's this term, um, no analog, like we're entering into no analog territory. That's kind of the science jargon, jargon term. Um, you know, uncharted territory is what I've what I've said before. And so it's literally, you know, from the perspective of climate and then some of the other major components of, of ecosystems like a disturbance regime, so wildfire, we're entering into, into territory that these systems haven't experienced over the duration of their, of their existence, which it could, in a lot of places in, in Western US is, you know, four to 6,000 years like in the Pacific Northwest, the species assemblage that those forests, the species assemblages of contemporary forests have largely been there for the past six to 7,000 years. Yeah, and I think the concept of disturbance is really, it's really fascinating to me. And I'm interested because I know disturb, these disturbance events are critical for ecosystems. And especially like in my world, I, I always talk about the importance of disturbance events for 
fish, you know, for certain species, pretty much any species that has adapted with these forests. But I'm curious, like how this, how these disturbance events might make more large scale, sort of unprecedented landscape changes. Um, I know that's hard to predict, but maybe, maybe you've looked into that a little bit. Yeah, we have and, and here. I mean, we have some general expectations. So we, we have expectations. Well, it's hard to predict exactly when and where. Um, but I think this is we will start to see this more and more and we are starting to see this more and more. So um, it's good that you reference like your like one way that we talk about disturbance is kind of as a as a consistent and predictable component of an ecosystem, whether it's the whether it's the river ecosystem, forest ecosystem, grassland ecosystem. And you know, in that context, we know that disturbance is a really important part of the way that ecosystems function. And you know, they help cycle nutrients. Um, a lot of species actually depend on the disturbances happening, you know, for regeneration. For example, for some trees, you know, they only regenerate after disturbance for habitat, etc. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the, the classic view and field of disturbance ecology. And that's, in essence, that's what got me interested in disturbance, because I think this is it's this fascinating event that doesn't, you know, usually doesn't occur often on human timescales. But when you walk around in the woods, you know, you're looking at the legacy of these events that happened hundreds or even more years ago, you know, the species composition you see, the reason you see giant Douglas fir that are amazing, right? Represent all these things that happened in the past. Um, so in that sense, you know, these disturbances like wildfire are things that we know are really important components of our ecosystems. And we, you know, we, we, don't, we don't want to, nor would it be possible necessarily to eliminate them. Um, Part of the reason that disturbance in wildfire is playing a more prominent role in the context of climate change is because disturbances also have the possibility of accelerating change. And so the term we use is catalyzing ecosystem change, which is literally like in the in the chemistry sense of the word, a catalyst rick makes a reaction that would happen anyways happen faster. And so when we talk about disturbance or wildfire <clears throat> catalyzing change, what we mean is that we know our ecosystems are adjusting to a warming climate. And so, if, you know, if we predict what trees can grow in Western Washington in 2100, we know that we're going to they're not going to be the trees that necessarily grow there today. Um, However, one of the things that's cool about forests, and particularly uh, Western Washington or Cascade Forest, right? They have species that can live for many centuries or even over a thousand years. So those trees that are established today, they can persist through climate conditions that become increasingly more challenging for seedlings of that same species to regenerate under. Um, so the longer we go into the future, kind of the more these stately old Douglas fir or Western hemlock or what have you, these trees are representing a climate from the past. And they can hang out there for a long time until they're killed. So 
if they die of old age, you know, that could be many centuries, but the reason that wildfire is so important and the reason it can catalyze this change is because wildfire, high severity wildfire can kill those trees. And then all of a sudden you, you're reset. And instead of having the same species or the same kind of successional trajectories happen that would have happened a hundred years ago, 500 years ago, um, you have a totally new set of successional trajectories. And so those trees that you just killed, seedlings of the same species are not able to regenerate. And you have now accelerated the rate at which the vegetation on that site is changing. And that's what, that's what we expect to see. And we're broadly seeing evidence of that across the West. And one of the key pieces of evidence that we see is just um, either a lack of or an absence of tree regeneration after wildfires in the last 20 years, particularly at, at the warmest and driest edges of where trees grow. So typically low elevation, south facing slopes. So these are places where trees are already close to their, like to the warm dry edge of where they can grow. Um, and so understandably, as climate gets even warmer and drier, these are the places that will change first. And again, like in this case, we could think of ponderosa pine, like at a lower tree line where there's, it's a grassland if you go any lower because it's too dry for trees to grow. These ponderosa pine, they could be a couple hundred years old. They could hang out and live there for a couple more decades or maybe even longer. But once killed, seedlings of ponderosa pine can't regenerate. So we're seeing these transitions from, in that case, from forest to non-forest. Um, and basically what we expect to see across landscapes are transitions from species that we're growing there to species that thrive, can thrive better under warmer, drier conditions and or conditions that have more disturbance. So some of that means just changes in, in species composition. So you might still have forests, but the species that are gonna be there will be different. So for example, in high elevation forests, you might have more lodgepole pine versus Engelmann spruce and subalpine fir. Um, in other regions, you might just see more shrubs dominate, like Ceanothus. Um, you have shrubs dominate instead of trees. So you can have transitions like that. And I love old growth as much as the next person, but in my instinct is to say that we wanna maintain these old growths and we wanna you know, maintain like the species that are currently existing in these spaces. But I'm curious if those transitions from a science standpoint are inherently bad, or if that's something that's kind of, that has precedence in past climate events. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'll tackle the, the second part first, which is the easier part. Um, yeah, these, these transitions have precedence in the past. So for example, if, if we look at how vegetation has changed in Western Washington over the last 11,000 years, we see these broad scale changes from that, that have completely different species composition. So, um, you know, 10, eight to 10,000 years ago, areas that were, were dominated by alder, um, well, even like when the glaciers receded, regions in the, in the Puget Sound were dominated by by spruce and, and pine. 
you know, so species that we see today at high elevations. That was replaced um, by a period with, with alder and Douglas fir. And then in the last six to 7,000 years, we see Western red cedar, um, Western hemlock, Douglas fir remains. We see that development of the modern species composition. So in one way, yes, these types of large scale vegetation changes are things that our ecosystems have experienced and gone through before in the past. We also know in the past that sometimes fire was the catalyst of that change. Like these changes often occur after we see fires in, in the paleo record. That's not to say they wouldn't have occurred otherwise, but again, it's that timing lines up with these tree killing disturbance events. Um, then the first part of your question, like, is this necessarily bad? That is, I mean, that's the, that's where the rubber hits the road in, in terms of that requires us humans, the people who are living in and depending upon these ecosystems, like we get to decide that essentially. Um, so it, there are trade-offs, right? Like the change in species composition, right? If you love forests and you like to recreate in forests, then that's, that's a bad change. Um, there are other ecological impacts, you know, it, that a change from forest to shrub or forest to non-forest that has important impacts on carbon cycling. So kind of from a scientific perspective, one of the reasons we, we want to understand this better is to be able to understand the future of the carbon cycle, um, which of course is important in the context of, of uh, CO2 induced climate change. So there are there are a lot of important changes that come with that. Um, I would say broadly, not all of that change is bad, uh, but it really depends on on the way that that the community values the current ecosystem and could potentially value the future ecosystem. I will say that I think you know I think our hand is kind of being forced now, given the rate of climate change. I don't think it's possible, but nor would it be be advisable for us to try to resist all change. Like that'll be a losing battle and we simply don't have enough resources to even attempt that. Um, I think what climate change is, is forcing us to, to wrestle with is to answer the questions more explicitly of what do we value from these systems and what do we want from them? Um, knowing that we're not gonna be able to have that everywhere um, but knowing that it is super critical that, you know, Seattle's municipal water supply remains, um, remains healthy and safe. So there's an area where there are a lot of values pinned on that particular watershed. But, um, another good example recently is, you know, this fires in California over the past two summers and the extent of, um, of, of the range of sequoia that, it, that those fires have impacted and the number of sequoia trees that we think have been killed by these fires, like that's a good example of where, well, you know, those ecosystems are gonna change, but those trees hold such high cultural value to us that that's a good example of where we are probably gonna spend a lot of resources protecting them from future fire. Um, versus trying to do that in all wilderness areas or high elevation forests, um, et cetera.
Yeah, that human element is really crit- pretty critical. I just I hadn't actually considered that. Like the, I mean, I don't know how I hadn't, but like the, can, we can place our own cultural values on, on how these places are impacted or like what impacts we're willing to accept. I guess um, that makes sense to me. Um, I'm curious. Uh, you know, looking back at Orcas Island, I'm curious, like what you were seeing for fire frequency in those in those ecosystems. Yeah, um, it was fun to dig back into, <laughs> dig back into the to that work. You know, starting at the broadest scale, the the first you know the first thing you learn in a fire history study is that you know, there is a history of fire, <laughs> which. You know, often if you drop into the state park or you just ask people, it's not the first thing that comes to mind, particularly in Western Washington. Um, so kind of the first big pattern is that um, in Moran State Park, there's virtually no fire in the, in the, 20, in the 20th century, in the 1900s. So there's been a, an absence of fire for well over a century now. Um, prior to that, there's consistent evidence of fire uh, back through the triggering record with widespread fires in 1894, um, widespread fire in 1836, um, 1823. And then if you look at the tree ring record, it goes back further, you know, through the 1700s and through the 1600s, you see evidence of, of fire that was severe enough to kind of kill overstory trees and initiate the regeneration of, of new cohorts of trees. And kind of the further back in time you go, the, the tree ring record fades because trees die and fires kill trees. And that's one of the things that's different from lake sediment records. Um, but on Orcas Island and in Rand State Park, if you've, if you've walked around there, particularly on Mount Pickett, you see these big old Douglas fir trees and those date back to like 1650. So those trees have, have been there for quite a while and they've survived a number of fires um, over the centuries. That's fascinating. I'm not sure if this is, if it's possible to know what the cause of these fires were, but I'm curious, especially in the lowland areas, maybe prairie areas, was there evidence of cultural burning or are you familiar with any cultural burning that took place on the islands? Yeah, so in, in our work, we did not decipher the, the cause of the fires and, um, but we do know on Orcas Island, like work by Dave Peterson um, and others, they've studied some south-facing forest prairie borders. Um, and yeah, we, we're, we're highly confident that there was cultural burning going on there. So as we go back um, on, you know, in the area that is now Moran State Park, it's very possible that some of those fires were, were human set or human set at lower elevations that moved up. Um, one thing that is, like one thing that we do know that is different than some human set fires is that these fires were, they varied in severity. So there were some high severity fires where most of the trees were killed. There were a lot of mixed severity fires where some trees were killed, some weren't. And then there were some low severity fires. Um, and I'd say, you know, the low severity and maybe mixed severity fires are the ones that are most consistent with the way that cultural burning is done. Um, and then the high severity fires are the ones that are most consistent with 
widespread burning that happens in these years with unusually warm, dry conditions. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I know there was also some, likely some logging, some, some, some fires associated with logging in the 1800s, I'm guessing. I'm not sure Certain, if that aligns yeah, with your research. Certainly broadly. I mean, one of the reasons that we studied, that we did this work in Moran State Park is because it was largely spared of logging. And I mean, interestingly, we, we needed, it was one of the only places in the Puget Sound that we could go to that was spared of logging. Um, the other study area that I mentioned around Carnation, Washington, it's in the Markworth State Forest. And that has been logged, you know, that was logged in the late 1800s, kind of in the first round of Euro-American logging. And it has been logged throughout the, the 20th and now 21st century as well. Um, so we do see, I mean, interestingly, we see clear evidence of that in the pollen record. Um, so the biggest change that that logging has had is just change the species composition. And that change is as distinct or more distinct than any of the changes that have occurred in, over the Holocene. Um, but yeah, there, there are also fires associated with, with logging. In general, I mean, there are like some of the biggest fires in Washington and Oregon state history are related to logging. But again, you know, not unlike, not unlike today where a lot of the fires that, that are most destructive to humans, you know, in 2020, this year, right, they have human ignitions as, as their origin, whether it's power lines or, you know, accidental sparks. Um, but those, those accidents turn into large wildfires during these years with extremely warm, dry conditions. And then in Western Washington and Oregon, uh, summers with extremely warm, dry conditions that then align with these east wind events that can drive fire. This is a big question. It might be outside of, you know, your comfort level, but I'm curious, you know, is there a good or is there a management strategy that would work in Western Washington or in Western Oregon? Like, is there something, you know, I know every ecosystem is different in, ter in terms of mitigation or in terms of management. So I'm curious, you know, if you've thought about that at all in terms of potentially uh, reducing impacts to communities in this area. Yeah, broadly I have, and it is, I mean, it is a, that's a meaty and really important question that we have to wrestle with and kind of, I'll, I'll creep my way towards answering it. Um, but it, at the highest level, the, you know, we, we use these, we use this term of fire regime to describe what the historical pattern of fire has been in an, in an ecosystem. And we use these kind of course des designations of a high severity fire regime, a low severity fire regime, or a mixed severity fire regime. And Western Washington is historically characterized, at least, um, yeah, Western Washington forests uh, have been characterized by, by high severity fire regimes, meaning that fires are infrequent, and meaning typically measured with three digits, you know, so hundreds of years between fires at any one point. And when they do occur, they burn at high severity. So we expect a lot of the trees, most of the trees to be killed. Um, 
I was just saying on Orcas Island, we see evidence of, of mixed severity fire as well. So as you get, as you get um, closer to, like if you went south towards the Willamette Valley or even um, around um, what's the military base that formerly known as Fort Lewis, <laughs> Joint Base Lewis-McChord. Um, you know, there are, there are prairie areas there, warmer and drier areas that supported different fire regimes, but broadly Western Cascade forests and forests in the Olympics characterized by high severity fire regimes. That's broadly similar to, to high elevation subalpine forests. They've also been characterized by high severity fire regimes. And um, before I, yeah, before we dig into what we can do there, that contrasts, like there are important contrasts between those systems and low severity fire regimes. So if you go over the Cascades, right, to the east, Eastern Cascades, um, ponderosa pine, Western larch dominated forests, particularly the lower elevation ones, those were historically characterized by frequent fires. And by frequent there, we mean they're typically measured with you know, one to two digits in between fires at any point. So several years to a couple decades. And in essence, because fire occurred more frequently there, when fire did occur, they typically burned uh, at lower, lower severity. So they weren't, they weren't as exciting fires from the perspective of huge flames and, um, and whatnot. So a lot of the trees survive those fires. Those trees also have thick bark that allow them to survive that type of fire. So the long lead in is, is because what we do, you know, how we, how we prepare for fire in different ecosystems is really contingent upon what the historical fire regime was. Um, that kind of gives us an idea of what's possible. And in some cases in low elevation forests, low severity fire regimes, those are also the forests that have, have kind of changed the most um, at the hand of both land use, like they, they've experienced more intense land use change, including logging. Um, and they've also changed more from a century of fire suppression relative to either Western Cascade forests or high elevation forests, right? right? So a century of fire suppression means something different in a system that burns once every one to 300 years versus a system that burns once every 10 years, say. So all that's important when you enter into this conversation of, well, what can we do to prepare for what we know is going to be, are, are going to be more fire prone climate conditions in the future. Um, and I think this is where, similar to our earlier part of our conversation, I think this is where we as humans and as residents and stewards of the land that we live in, like we are really being confronted with some really hard questions because of climate change. And some of the answers that we used to be able to more comfortably lean on are no longer available to us. So, you know, a decade or two ago, 
the answer to this question would be, well, you know, we can do forest restoration in low elevation forests, and that will bring the forest back into a condition that it's more like what it was in the past before we suppressed fires. And then things will more or less be good, <laughs> you know, and, and legitimately, you know, like communities will be safer. Um, there'll be less high severity fire. And yeah, we'll have less fire disasters. Like that's increasingly being challenged as, as the climate knob gets turned up. And I think more challengingly is we're now starting to see, you know, high severity fires in Western Cascades, in high elevation forests like in Colorado, in and around these communities that have, have now been built up in these high severity fire regimes. So in those systems, I mean, broadly, the answer to the question is, yes, there are things we can do to help protect the communities that are surrounded by this flammable vegetation. What is unpalatable to a lot of people, and I mean, admittedly, it's challenging to deal with, is that if we are going to modify the fuel structure in a subalpine forest or a Western Cascade forest to protect a community, we know that we're gonna be changing that forest away from what it has been like for many centuries uh, to millennia. Um, and again, this, these are the types of tough questions that, we're, that we have to, to deal with now. Um, to say, I, I personally think it's irresponsible or a cop-out to say like, well, no, these forests historically burned at high severity. We don't wanna change them, we shouldn't do anything. You can say that, but that's gonna come at the cost of a lot of human suffering ultimately. On the other side, the tricky thing about that conversation is across many communities in the West, there's deep distrust between either federal land management agencies like the Forest Service and the public or the timber industry and the public. And there are still a lot of people who cut their teeth in the 80s and 90s in, in environmental issues where an orange to red flag pops up very distinctly anytime there's discussion of removing trees from a landscape. Um, so the way forward is gonna be tricky. Uh, and I guess to kind of like wrap this up <clears throat> in one sense, the, in these Western, Western Cascade forests and high elevation subalpine forests, the, it will be really important to see if, to the extent that forest management or vegetation removal or fuels reduction, fire hazard reduction, to the extent that that's being proposed to help protect communities, like it really needs to be focused and prioritized on communities, right? So it shouldn't be used to justify stuff tens of miles away from communities. Um, that's not to say that that doesn't have any impact. It might, but in our, like we're kind of in a triage moment right now. Um, and even with all that said, we, we also know that the best fuels treatment or fire hazard reduction treatment around a community is not a guarantee that that community is not gonna be negatively impacted from fire, right? 
it's like a safety belt or it's like a vaccine, you know, it's better than nothing. We know it helps, um, but, you know, if you crash at 80 miles an hour with your seatbelt on, like that's not gonna do much. Um, and the thing that climate change is doing is it's basically increasing our speed. Like it's making all of the things that we can do less and less effective. Um, but I don't think that means that we shouldn't do, th do that. Yeah, and just to wrap it up, do you have anything else to add? Maybe ending on a note of like, either why you're sort of distressed by climate change or why why you feel a sense of hope towards better integrating some of these mitigation strategies, like whatever you'd like to end on. I guess I'll, say I'll, I'll end with two things. One is kind of specific back back to Orcas Island, because um, I think this is this is more and more important now, you know, when you study fire history, like you get this front row seat essentially to know that these systems have burned in the past um, in high severity fires or otherwise. And part of me, you know, back in 2000, 2001, when we were doing this work, part of me wanted to really, you know, trumpet that out and share that with people. But at that time, the, there was no, there was basically no audience for it because people did not see fire uh, in Western Washington. So part of the part of the urgency of this is like we're now at the point where any system where there's vegetation to burn is can possibly burn in the future, even if it is a a coastal temperate rainforest, you know, that's burned really infrequently in the past. So I think it is really important that that basically citizens across the West have fire at the forefront of their mind and increasingly so, and just know that the way that we've interacted with the environment we live in from the perspective of fire, the way we've done that in our past, in our childhood, or the way that our parents or grandparents have, like that's no longer uh, really relevant or appropriate for the environment that we're living in today. Um, the one potential area where I see some, some possibility here, like the, the flip side of climate change kind of forcing our hand in a lot of cases here is that I think there is an opportunity for us as humans to um, kind of step up and recognize that we do have to take responsibility for living in the landscapes that we live in. Um, and you know, maybe some of this will help us connect the dots between how we are not separate from the ecosystems we live in uh, or recreate in or depend upon. And while uncomfortable, we have to participate in the change that our systems are going through. Um, and I think maybe part actively participating and thinking about how we want systems to change, what role we want to play could ultimately, you know, leave us in, in a better spot in the future in terms of not disregarding or being disconnected from, from the landscape. Woo, all right. That was a good one. Kind of one of my top five favorite conversations I've had on this podcast. And that's not saying anything about my previous guests. It's more or less saying that I'm really interested in what's happening kind of in my backyard and not a lot of people 
can comment on that and there's not really been a lot of research on it so it was really fascinating to hear Phil's perspective on it and I want to thank Phil for coming on the show I really appreciated his insight and his perspective and him dealing with all of my silly questions about what paleo records are and lake sedimentation and yeah anyway I have a lot more research to do about lake sedimentation because that is so fascinating All right, anyway, we are done with this episode and we'll have another one for you next week. We'll be talking to a reporter in California and uh, discussing what it's like to cover wildfires in California, mostly in Northern California. I'm pretty excited to publish that one. That's with Danielle Venton. And as always, thank you for the support, for the follows, for the reviews, for the kind messages, for the support on Patreon or the donations for the calendar. There's been such an outpouring of support lately and I literally cannot express enough how happy I am about it and how appreciative I am for it so thank you guys thanks everybody for following along and listening to all these episodes and being supportive uh we can't thank you enough if you dug this episode I do ask that maybe you share it with somebody who also might be interested in it or maybe otherwise give us a review on apple because the algorithm loves that And otherwise, I will catch you guys on the next one. Thanks again.